Welcome, one and all, to Election Profit Makers, your guide to winning and losing money on current events. It's a podcast about making... <laughs> John just whipped out his beard comb. That was incredible. I got to oh do it Oh, my God. Again. That's so Dial yeah. for Murder. Yeah. Did you get a mustache comb after seeing Dial for Murder? No. I just got it the other day. It, it cost $6. I don't know if that's a lot for them. Comb. So technically, yes, you did get it after seeing Dial-In for Murder, if you got it the other day. Oh, yeah, I forgot what after meant. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Election Profit. I did get it after. <laughs> I'm trying to Sorry. get in my groove, and I got John Kimball over here brushing his beard on Zoom, and I can't find my groove because I'm so distracted by his new beard comb. Regardless, welcome— Fuck it, we'll do it live. <laughs> Starly, you know where that's from? It's so incredible, Starly. It's the most incredible footage. Bill O'Reilly got really angry one time when he was doing his— sign off of uh, Inside Edition. Finally, he was like, fuck it, we'll do it live. We'll do it live. <laughs> I mean, he so just incredible. lost it. Fuck it, we'll do it live. Welcome to Election Profit Makers, your uncut, unbossed, unbothered, hottest political podcast on the scene. I am one of the hosts. My name is David, and I am joined by my two co-hosts, Starly. Hi, Starly. Hi. And also John. Hi, John. Hey, guys. Happy weekend, great weekend, celebrating uh, Carolina's win over Duke. Everybody who, everybody who went to Franklin Street to celebrate UNC's victory over Duke is an idiot. Yeah, and I would just like to say that after that game ended, I, I tweeted, I'm headed to Franklin Street, which was an obvious joke, but it wasn't until an hour later that I realized that thousands of people actually did go to Franklin Street. I was not one of them. Because of your tweet? No, I hope, I don't they think it was because of my tweet. They followed your tweet to Franklin Street? You, <laughs> Maybe you it caused, was me. You were a super spreader? Yep. Maybe, but I deleted the tweet, but not because I went, just because I didn't want people to think I went. I mean, my parents had COVID. My dad was hospitalized. I would not be going to Franklin Street. It was an obvious thing. What a fucking disaster, those UNC kids going to Franklin Street. If, and both teams were unranked for the first time in 40 years. Like, of any game to not celebrate. Do you know what, David? It was actually the first time since 1960. It was the first time in 61 years that both teams were unranked. Because they probably didn't practice because of COVID. Yeah, and Starley is absolutely right. And we have a very young team, as does Duke. And teams that are older and have played a lot together uh, have done better this year. And teams that are young, like Carolina and Duke, have sucked. Uh, But we sucked less than they do. And that's important in rivalries. I had a dream last night that UNC canceled all classes on Monday because they're supposed to start classes on Monday. And I had a dream they canceled it. And then I dreamt. I know John loves to hear about my dreams, so I'll just say that I had a dream that I was I do want to hear this. I was at a museum that had a whole exhibit on corrosion of conformity. They even had like a diorama or like, you know, like mannequins of corrosion of conformity. And then there was this clogged toilet and I just tried to unclog the toilet, and I couldn't do it. So that's a wonderful, wonderful look inside the mind of Kid Midas. We're recording this on a Sunday evening. It's Super Bowl uh, Sunday. Can I tell you my dream? Oh, my God. I, I dreamt that I worked for Rudy Giuliani, and I was a spy. Hello. With a spy squad of women who were all much better spies than I was. Not that I was bad. They were just more experienced, and I was really nervous about not being such a great spy. And I did hate working for Rudy. John's dream wins. John's yeah, dream I would, wins. Yeah, I would treat those dreams. Much in. better dream. Would you rather work with a team of glamorous female spies for the America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani, or be stuck trying to unclog a broken toilet at a corrosion of conformity exhibit? I think the choice is clear. 
And like John's, like your, what, insecurity or like whatever, whatever reason you were metaphorically unclogging a toilet in your dream, David, like whatever you're afraid you're not enough of or something, uh-huh. like your inability to unclog the toilet, uh-huh. that also pales in comparison to John's feelings of inadequacy to spy women. Right. I mean, I, g- give me credit that I did, I did know that I was an okay spy. Oh, I'm glad to, that's good. That's healthy. I didn't, I just knew, I wanted to impress them. I like all of And it. I was anxious about that. How did you demonstrate your guys' spy? Well, that's interesting that you ask. I had to rope down into some sort of garage late at night. Uh, and I did it really well um, and get some information and get it to Rudy by like 10 o'clock <laughs> the next morning. I thought I was going to, I had to get it to him that night, but then I had, my anxiety was like, should I email Rudy in the middle of the night? And knowing Rudy, I probably should have, because you see emails, reporters all the time. But in my dream, I was like, no, I'll wait till the next day. And I did. An incredible dream. The rope actually mechanically moved as I went down. It all, it like did all the rope did all the work for me. I, I couldn't believe when I hit the ground. I was like, "This is pretty easy." I wish I could say the same thing about that fucking plunger because <laughs> I was working on that thing for like fifteen minutes in this dream. Kept checking, kept flushing, kept checking. Water coming up to the edge of the bowl. Is it going to spill over into the museum and mess up this corrosion of conformity exhibit? Plunging, 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 and then somebody came by, and I had to admit that I was just doing it like I didn't. I wasn't the custodian like it wasn't my job I just saw a clogged toilet and thought I should unclog it and I found a plunger in the corner and I just set myself upon this task and I was just failing it in the middle of this museum maybe it was uh anxiety about the podcast Hmm. well let's get to it let's conquer the anxiety by recording a world-class episode of the podcast maybe it was anxiety about seeing about talking to Bill maybe that's why you're dreaming about conformity oh corrosion of conformity Starly, that's a wonderful pivot because we have a guest this week who refuses to conform to the Mm -hmm. corrosive effects of the left liberal media elite. The one and only true middle-aged centrist. You've heard the tiny centrist. Now it's (laughs) time to meet the full-grown centrist. Uh, We booked a very special guest to help us make sense of the COVID relief bill status. This is someone I've actually known for quite some time. And in my mind, I think of him as a buddy, a pal. We've had a lot of nice times together, but also as a bit of a status nerd, a process nerd. And I have to say, a bit of a centrist. Am I allowed to call you a centrist? I, you know, I, I don't accept the label. I, I, I go by liberal. Liberal, which, okay. Which, which was bad enough yeah. in, the, in the current environment. Um, and I have developed... Uh, a concern about polarization, which makes me talk about bipartisanship a lot. Right. And that can get you tagged as a moderate or a centrist. But for my opinion, I don't think that, I don't like centrist policy. I like liberal policy, but I think bipartisanship is necessary to get a good chunk of that and just for the whole country not to fall apart. So you're Joe Manchin. Yeah. So we will we'll compromise and call you a neoliberal concern troll. No, no, that's not fair. That's not fair. Please welcome to Election Profit Makers the one and only Bill Share. Corporatist bootlicker, please. Corporatist bootlicker, Bill Share. 
Bill, we want to start with, um, we ask all our guests this, and it's the one thing that people always want to know. Where did you go to college? <laughs> uh, where all good corporatist bootlickers go, Oberlin College. In Ohio. In Ohio. As you know, David, the only person of real notoriety and fame and respect that came out of Oberlin when we were there is Michelle Malkin. That's right, Michelle Malkin. Wait a minute, I didn't know that. <laughs> David, you never mention her. Well, I don't usually mention her when I do the roll call of heroes from Oberlin College. She only mentioned Lena Dunham. The alumni I prefer to focus on are Lena Dunham, Ed Helms, <laughs> Avery Brooks, and other stars Liz of the Fair. Academy and pop culture. And Liz Fair, that's right. We, we, we didn't overlap with Liz Fair. We overlap with Michelle. And I worked on the same college paper as Michelle Malkin. That's right, you did. I was quoted once in a Michelle Malkin profile, and my quote was then brought to her on C-SPAN, which she then trashed as being uh, unfair and inaccurate. What was the quote? What did you think of her? Well, you know, she was always conservative, but she wasn't insane. Right. Uh, she wasn't trafficking with, you know, anti-Semitic domestic terrorists. Did Oberlin make her that? I don't think so. You know, Oberlin has a college and a conservatory. Oh, here we go. <laughs> here we go. This is why I booked you, Bill. I don't give I don't give two flying fucks about this COVID relief package. I just want to hear about Oberlin. Speak, Bill. Speak to the listeners. I've been trying to get it through these listeners' heads for months. We have all these teenagers who listen to our podcast. I haven't had one single person reach out to me about applying to Oberlin College <laughs> among these teenagers. So let it rip, Bill. We got a college and a conservatory. But to Starley's point, I think a lot of conservatives were not that way until they got to college and they came across a bunch of liberals in college, progressives, and that radicalized them. And they're so mad about it, they can't get over it in the rest of their adult lives. It's always the liberals' fault. Why is that? I don't think that's Michelle. I think she was always generally conservative, but she went there for the conservatory for music. She might have she jumped out of it and went to the college afterwards. You go to the college, you're there because, you know, you were a hippie in high school and you want to go to a hippie place. You go to the conservatory, that's like going to like a like a professional school. You're there, you're there to work and to get a job. The conservatory had a reputation as being much more conservative than the college. She definitely got a lot worse over time. She was more of a garden variety conservative at Oberlin. Now she's completely off the charts. Did she get attacked a lot, though, at Oberlin, though, as being a garden variety? Were there a garden variety conservative sect? See, as, as David knows, I'm the guy that got dragged at Oberlin. This guy was a master level troll at Oberlin. I mean, and, I, and I was never a conservative conservative. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't anti-gay. I wasn't anti-abortion. I was just conservative for Oberlin and was willing to get into a lot of trouble. Whereas Michelle was just sort of doing her own thing. She wrote like an anti-affirmative action piece once that got people mad. Like that's as, that's as bad as Michelle got. It wasn't nearly the kind of stuff she was doing today. Hmm. Oh, I love it. I, I mean, I could talk about this all day. Campus culture, ninety mid nineties Oberlin College. Whew, that's going to be my that's going to be my special fifty episode podcast. But let's return now to the COVID relief bill. The one thing that perhaps is slightly more important than my memories of my college days. Um, bill, tell us what is going on with this COVID relief bill. Uh, so Biden proposed one point nine trillion dollars in relief. Uh, so some people look at that and say, wow, that's a lot bigger than what Obama did. You're talking about Obama's response to the financial crisis in 2009. Correct. Right. And the Obama approach in 2009 was to pack in as many long-term policy goals that they could manage to wedge in there and then balance that with some tax cuts to make 
the business community and the moderates happy, and they had to limit the overall price tag to get all the moderates and Republicans, as few that they did get on board. Uh, and so now there's a narrative that they went too small and the economy w- was slow in response. Biden has internalized that sort of. So it's bigger in price, but it's all short term. It's not let's let's graft infrastructure on top of this. Let's graft clean energy projects on top of this. They're not doing that, whereas Obama did. Well, they are doing one thing, though, which was that they were going to try to put a federally mandated $15 minimum wage into the bill. That that was a long-term thing, right? That was, that's, the, that's the one thing that was initially in there and which Biden has now tossed aside. And was that ever serious? Were they ever seriously thinking that they could do that? Uh, I think that was always there to be conceded. Yeah. And I'm actually a little surprised that Biden has allowed it to be tossed off before there's any kind of broader deal. Uh, I, I would have thought you'd hold out a little bit longer on that. They've done a bad job with expectation settings. I think you would agree, Bill, probably, by throwing that in there. Well, Biden's not saying it's gone forever. He's saying, I can't get it done through reconciliation. Uh, and he probably can't get it done uh, without, I mean, he probably can't get a straight 15 done, period. The last time we had a minimum wage increase was uh, when Democrats took the House after the 2006 elections. And it was paired with small business tax cuts and Iraq war funding. That's when they got George W. Bush to sign it. I mean, the war was already on. (laughs) You know, Democrats didn't want to do a whole cut the funding off of the troops thing anyway. So they had, you know, a meeting of the minds there. Uh, So you probably always have to do some kind of small business bone to get a minimum wage increase. Uh, And if they're going to do 15, it'll probably have to be a long time frame. That'll take some time to negotiate what the time frame is. Or they're going to do things regionally. Or they're going to have to go with 11 or 12. And that's probably a lot to figure out in a month. Uh, so I don't think that was serious for this bill. Uh, now, there is the question whether they are doing this to reconciliation or not. I thought that was a done deal. That's what confused me, I have to say. Uh, I don't think that is a done deal. You think they're going to compromise with these damn Republicans just to make you happy? <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's back up. Let's get into the policy weeds for a second, the procedural weeds, okay? All right. So generally speaking, you need to get 60 votes in the Senate to break a filibuster. That's why we're going to abolish the filibuster, right, Phil? Which we're actually not going to do because <laughs> yes, we the Democrat are. from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, and the Democrat from Arizona, Kirsten Cinema, has said, no way, no how, unequivocal, no wiggle room. I'm never, ever, ever, ever abolishing the filibuster. I take people <sighs> at their words when they give zero wiggle room, and they've given zero wiggle room. So expect the filibuster to stay in these next two years. The only way to get around the filibuster is through this process called budget reconciliation. You can't do budget reconciliation whenever you feel like it. It's only for bills that have direct budgetary impact. And you have to, as a precursor, pass a budget resolution, which is not a law. It's non-binding. It does not go to the president. It's supposed to set a guidelines for your fiscal year spending. You do it for a, a fiscal year. But in that resolution, you can include budget reconciliation instructions for specific committees. And only those committees can create a law, a bill, for specific issue areas. Uh, so Democrats have now done that. They have passed the budget resolution uh, with Joe Manchin support, with all the 50. So they can 
ignore the Republicans completely and pass COVID relief on their own. Through budget reconciliation. So the process, since the resolution has passed, the various committees are now tasked with crafting their piece of the bill. That's going to take a few weeks. Uh, It can take a year. I mean, there's no time. there's, There's no literal time frame on it. The Biden administration wants to get this done by mid-March because that's when the first piece of the last relief bill expires. And they don't want hiccups in all these unemployment programs to occur. So they want it done by mid-March, and you probably need to you know, get a House bill to the floor by late February um, so the Senate can go through all of its you know, arcane procedural rules uh, to have it be done in time for that. But Biden has not shut down bipartisan talks with the Susan Collins Group of Ten. Some people seem to be confused about this. But in my mind, reconciliation is leverage for any subsequent bipartisan talks. If if Biden Biden has met with the Group of Ten once, he has said, let's have our staffs continue to talk to each other. If they meet in person again, part of the negotiation is, Hey, I'd love to do this bipartisan. I'd love to get 60. I'd rather not use one of my fiscal year reconciliation shots. I only get so many. I, I can't do it every week. If I, if I don't have to use it for this, I'd love to use it for something else down the line. But first and foremost, I want to go big. We are, the jobs, the jobs uh, growth is stalling. People are in serious housing distress. I can't screw around here. I'm not doing 600 billion like you offered. I'm in the 1.9. You got to get much closer to me than I'm going to you if we're going to do this together. And if you don't, if you don't want to get on board, three quarters of the country is with me on this. You can either share the credit or we can get all the credit. That's the leverage Biden has right now. And this is what I don't understand. You know, I think I think at least two of the hosts of election profit makers felt their skin crawl and their blood run cold when Biden was hooting and hollering about being a uniter and being bipartisan. If you can pass this thing through reconciliation, why would you, A, agree to make your package even smaller just so you can have some Republican support for it? And B, politically, wouldn't it be much stronger for them going into the midterms to be like, look, we Democrats wanted to help you guys and Republicans wouldn't play ball. So we use this process called reconciliation and we are the only party that got you those checks that got you some COVID relief. The Republicans can't do anything. They sat this out. Vote Democrat in 2022 midterms. Well, I think the problem with that uh, approach, and again, this is partly partly my opinion, partly what I think Biden's strategy is. You can't do everything you want through reconciliation. It has to have direct budgetary impact, uh, and it has to be within one fiscal year's budget resolution. You Maybe you can get two of those over the course of a two-year period. I don't think they could do three. Uh, if you want to do something on climate, you want to do something on voting rights, uh, you want to do something on immigration, you can't do that through reconciliation. You need you need 60 for those types of things. So I think Biden would rather get off on the good foot, rather break the Republican caucus in two, separate mm-hmm. the rational ones from the irrational ones. And so you, you can do this with me. I'm going to give you some love. You can help shape the bill. You, know, you can't take it in a wholly different direction. <laughs> Starley looks so distraught right now. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work it out. I'm trying to work out how I feel about his 
his plan? Because it feels like it could backfire, too. Well, some people, some people say to me, you can't trust these Republicans. You can't let them jerk you around. You can't let them waste your time. And I agree with that. Um, I don't think Biden's going to waste time. They have a rough deadline of mid-March. He can say to Republicans, look, are you in or out? I can go from 1.9 to 1.5, give or take. Uh, I'm not going below a trillion. I'm not going to junk rental assistance when people are need housing-wise. I got to have $1,400 checks for at least some cohort of people. I got some non-negotiables. I don't know what exactly his non-negotiables are. I'm just speculating here. Right. Now, there's also this other complicating factor, which is Larry Summers. Larry Summers, who was the Clinton Treasury Secretary, Obama's economic advisor. The man with the Midas touch, Larry Summers. Don't go too big. Inflation will make things too expensive. Give everyone 20 nickels and call it a day. Right, so Summers is out there. He, I mean, mind you, Republicans up until this point have almost no oppositional strategy here. There's no Republican attack plan on this bill. You go back to 2009, by this point in 2009, Rush Limbaugh had already called the stimulus the porculus. And Republicans were rallying around that porculus cry. This was just stuff with a bunch of, de- a grab bag of Democratic parties. It's not about the economy at all. Should all be tax cuts. This is all a scam. And Obama was on his heels message-wise and had to go, do, he did a Democratic retreat right around this time, around first week of February, where he lashed into Republicans, where he a bunch of hypocrites, like, it wasn't a kumbaya moment between Obama and the Republicans. I'm not, I'm not trying to dog Obama on that point, but I'm just saying it was a different dynamic than it is today. Republicans are in the middle of fighting amongst themselves whether they should be supporters of QAnon or not. You know, they're, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're very distracted. <laughs> and they're so dazed. They're so dazed in the wake of these last months. They're punished. They're, they try to right. punish Liz Cheney for trying to impeach Donald Trump as opposed to figuring out what to do about this relief bill. When, when Susan Collins shows up in the White House, no one yells at her. No one's mad at Susan Collins or the Republicans for doing this. Um, Mitch McConnell was trying to drive a wedge between Biden and his White House staff over who's the more bipartisan component of the administration. <laughs> right. So to that point, Bill, don't you think, because they're in such dire straits and they're so unorganized, that don't you think that they have to agree to something close to Biden's number? Yeah, if, if, if we're going to actually get 60 here, it's going to be much closer to Biden's opening than Collins' opening. Not so, not a not not a trillion. Probably higher than I would if, if it's going to get to sixty. I would think one point three to one point five. That's my guess. Uh, now, but here, so here comes Larry Summers. Summers yeah, is the yeah. first guy to come out with with some kind of prominent platform to say one point nine is too much. Now, mind you, he he's also kind of in the Obama mindset. He said if that's for infrastructure, that's for long term infrastructure. I'm not as worried. I don't like it that big for short term payments because that might lead to inflationary pressures. That's, that's Summers. And I saw some Republicans glom onto that on the Sunday talk shows this morning. That's the first thing they had to grab onto to right. say maybe this should be smaller than 1.9. Even famous Democrat Larry Summers says this might be too much. <laughs> but even then, they're not saying you shouldn't do it. They're not saying this is a bad idea in concept. They're not saying everything's hunky-dory out in the universe. The framework is all, we're in distress, we need deficit spending in a big way, and we're haggling over price. Uh, so maybe Biden is a little swayed by Summers. Maybe he feels, you know what, I, I can live with 1.5. It's no big deal. But and, and I can go to not just Susan Collins, you know, Mike Rounds of South Dakota, not a guy you'd think of as, as prime bipartisan potential, but he's in the group of 10. Right now, who is in South Dakota 
banging on Mike Rounds' door not to do this. So people think I'm a little crazy. I, 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 I grant that I may be overly optimistic because I know I'm kind of out here about my lonesome on this point. And things might change between now and the end of February where Republicans get their, get, find their footing. But as of today, relief is wildly popular with no organized opposition. So why not, if you're a Republican, take the free vote, say, I help with this. I'm not going to let Democrats get all the credit. I'll accept 1.4, 1.5. And then we'll talk about something else down the road, whether we can agree more or fight more. Two things. One, regarding Larry Summers, I read an article that said the Biden White House, to my immense relief and joy, had totally frozen him out and was like, fuck Larry Summers and fuck his op-ed. This is not 2009. Better to go too big than not big enough. I think it's going to be hard. It's, it's going to be hard to read tea leaves through the press because any individual person on the White House staff or any individual person on a Senate staff can get quoted anonymously and be portrayed as speaking for the broader party. And it's very possible that you know, three-quarters, four-fifths, five-sixths of the average Democrat in Congress or in the White House has that mistrustful attitude uh, about not just Republicans, but about some of the more moderate Obama hands. But we don't know what's in Biden's head. We don't know where Manchin might draw lines. We don't know what moderate Democrats in the House might draw lines. There's a small group of people in the House right now saying you should separate out the vaccine money, which is very tiny in the bigger scheme of things, to 20 billion. You should do that right now and do the rest in reconciliation, you know, in March. I'm not saying they're necessarily going to get anywhere with that, with that plea. My point is it only takes four or five people in the House, if they were to lock arms, to force your hand. It only takes one Democratic senator to force your hand. And so we're so early in this. So people thought, oh, they passed the budget resolution on a party line vote. They're all locking arms right now. Do not assume that. You don't know who's going to raise their hand and give you agita as this process goes along. And so that's why I, I, I'm not making predictions. I'm not saying I know this is going to happen or that's going to happen. I think there's a lot of uncertainty. And a lot of people have cards to play because the margins in the Congress are so narrow. I'll make a prediction. I think it's going to be less than 1.3. I, I don't know why. My second point is, I under, the one reason I think it would be okay not to use reconciliation is your point that you only get so many shots at reconciliation in a fiscal year. And if they can pass this without reconciliation, without making it totally suck to appease the GOP, why not keep reconciliation in our back pocket so we can use something the GOP finds totally toxic, like voting rights? But I don't see how voting rights could be used via reconciliation well, because, as you mentioned, right. Okay, so that was a bad bad counterexample. No, I mean, you could um, – I mean, it has to have direct budgetary impact. Right. Now, there, there's some debate about that, you know, because uh, the Senate parliamentarian gets to say – whether this provision's in order or not. But can't Kamala Harris, as president of the Senate, overrule the parliamentarian? Right, so yes. the presiding officer, which is either the vice president or somebody else, if, if she's not there, that person can overrule the parliamentarian, and you would only need 60 votes to overrule that. So with a minority of Democrats, or, or sorry, plurality of Democrats, minority of the Senate, you could sustain the vice president overruling the parliamentarian. However... 
you still would need 50 for the final bill. So if Joe Manchin says, that's not cool, Kamala Harris, I don't want you to shove minimum wage in this reconciliation bill through that. I'm not going to let you. You do that, I vote no. Then she's got to back off. You think Joe Manchin would say that about voting rights? Well, number one, uh, I think the percent of the electorate in West Virginia that is African-American is like 0.5%. I don't think voting rights is what is driving Joe Manchin's priority list right now. Okay, point taken. Now, I actually have a piece coming out in the Washington Monthly um, on Monday. So this might air after it's published. And I don't know if my brilliance is going to affect this, this debate at all. But my argument in that article is everybody's presumption about which parties will benefit from various voting rights provisions is 180 degrees out of whack. Really? That's a hot take, Bill. You better better put on your oven mitts when you write that. Damn. Democrats think if we do more mail voting and early voting and same-day registration and we get ex-felons to vote, if we do all that stuff, we're going to make out like bandits on election day. And Republicans think if we do more voter ID laws and double photo ID in Georgia, that's when we need to suppress the vote and win. And it's just none of it. None of it is backed up by data. It is all just this partisan narrative that... It's unknown, yes, yes. How do you explain Georgia? Uh, Georgia is largely... uh, It's a combination of demographic changes uh, and... Uh, arguably better ground game. I talked to a Republican operative for my piece who said Democrats are just out hustling us on the ground. We have unlikely voters. We have low propensity voters. We're not bringing them out. We left a whole bunch of votes on the table in Arizona that didn't show up because they have, Democrats had 120 nonprofits working to get the vote over a two-year period, and we didn't have any. So there's there's a study of the pool of 100 million non-voters and very rare voters that was done by the Knight Foundation last year that say it's roughly split between Democrats and Republicans. About 33% Democrat, 30% Republican, slightly to the left on economics, slightly to the right on social conservatism. There were a lot of, there's a lot of Republican turnout boosts in this past election. I mean, we, we had the highest turnout election since women's suffrage in 2020. And yeah, mm-hmm. Biden won took back the Senate, but the House popular vote was more Republican in 2020 than 2018. And Republicans gained seats at the state legislative level. So it's not a clear picture that this giant boost of turnout, a huge boost of turnout, all went in one direction. But but isn't there an argument that Trump being the ultimate turnout machine, and he, and he has been, with, that, with Trump not being on the ballot, that you actually might see Republican turnout go down a little bit. I mean, but that's about Trump. That's not about the laws. That's not about mail voting laws. That's, I mean, I mean, really, Trump made right. harder for Republicans by saying, don't vote by mail. I mean, no, he did everything he could to make them lose. But right. does, does, your, does your theory encompass like gerrymandered districts too? Gerrymandered is a whole other subject. That's, that's separate. Separate thing. I, there's a purge question, which is separate from gerrymandering. I, don't, I, I didn't end up purging in my piece. Um, now I got into the felon piece. This is also very interesting. Uh, Because everybody assumes that if you give ex-felons the right to vote, that's a disproportionately African-American population that's good for Democrats. It is disproportionately African-American that's not the same as majority African-American. Nationally speaking, the population of of felons and ex-felons who are not currently incarcerated, so you could be, you know, you've done your sentence or you're on probation or parole, under the current Democratic bill, those people would have the right to vote. The, The national bill they have 
HR1. Um, that pool is probably majority white or plurality white, about uh, and about a third African American. Now that, and that's different state by state. There are certain states where that would be a majority, like Georgia. Uh, in Florida, it's 28% African American. Uh, and in a lot of states, it's not a lot of people at all. It's concentrated in a handful of states. And so the average, average felon, average prisoner, mind you, is not just white, but also male and non-college, which is your classic Trump voter. So if Democrats go to Republicans and say, hey, you know, we got to do this. We, we have an African-American base that needs us to deliver. So we are politically, you know, obligated to follow through here. But guess what, guys? You're going to make out pretty well yourselves. It's all, it's all pretty electorally neutral, this stuff. Uh, and if Republicans understood that, they wouldn't oppose it so vehemently. And that's why you could, I mean, I'm not saying Democrats get their entire bill as it stands with 60, but there is some voting rights bill you could get with 60 if people understood the data. So that's an argument for, again, procedurally, and then also you're saying politically, voting rights is not going to happen through reconciliation. Correct. So we come back to my original thing. Well, it's like, fuck it. Nothing else is more important than this COVID relief bill. Let's do reconciliation. And again, on a political, just thinking about it politically, why would Biden do Republicans the favor of letting them get involved in this fucking bill? Doesn't it spread the the blame? We're all in this together, right? You share credit and blame. Yeah, yeah. So if we if we push it through through reconciliation, then we own it. So make it good. So fucking make it a big, great, terrific bill that can't fuck up. It feels like the risk, like they're making statements right now about who they are, right? Like Biden saying he's going to let the Dem- Republicans help when you said that Republicans might not oppose it because it's so widely, it's a it's a popular it's a popular thing to do. Republicans seem to not always care about what the people want. Like Republicans like to establish themselves as the opposition party. The optics of what he is doing and the optics of what they do seem as important as the actual mechanics of it. It seems weak, Bill. I mean, it just seems it seems weak. This attitude of like, I really want everyone to be friends, guys. I just really want everyone to be friends because then in four years, fucking, Repu- you think Mitch McConnell's not going to, I mean, what what is the fantasy here? I think it could work. These Republicans think that Hillary Clinton cut off a baby's face and wore it as a mask. They're not going to care. Not all of them, David. They're not, not every all of them, Republican John, thinks all, that. For all practical purposes. Maybe maybe one in three thinks that. It's not all of them. Definitely all of them. I agree with David that all it's of them. It's all. Thank yeah. you, Starley. But Biden... Um, saying we're very tired and we have to get something done and we're going to give them this one chance on, on a bill that affects everybody, I don't think is the worst, is the weakest move he could do. Yeah, wow. so Starley, welcome to the centrist With team. three fucking neoliberal corporate bootlicker bipartisans. Wow, looks John is so it. happy that Starley came around. I understand the strategy of it. Strategy, exactly. It sucks, but it's strategy. David, can I make a point here? Tread lightly, Bill. Make your point. This is something that people yeah. don't have not internalized. Every bill that Barack Obama signed, with the lone exception of the Affordable Care Act and the fault reconciliation bill that included those ACA fixes and student loan reform, every other bill Obama signed had at least one Republican vote on it. And they would not have gotten to his desk otherwise. You would not have gotten Dodd-Frank, Wall Street reform. You would not have gotten Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal. You would not have gotten... 
um, food safety regulations. You, you now got in the Fair Sentencing Act, which people don't even remember that he did, uh, but that was actually done by a voice vote in the House. It was so under the radar, it was so non-controversial uh, that sailed through the Senate on unanimous consent and the House on a voice vote. Uh, when you can depolarize issues, that's the thing. The stimulus was, was, not, was not depolarized, and so you had only three Republicans in the Senate, and that was it. Uh, when things went a little bit more under the radar, they were able to get more of those things done. And Biden, creature of the Senate, knows how to count, knows what can go through reconciliation and what can't. He wants to create an environment where getting those 10 votes is possible because they can get more stuff done that way and he can run on what they delivered on. So there's that piece of it. And if he can split the Republicans, if he can divide the Republicans between the Q faction and the sane faction, that's also good for Democrats going forward because they're going to be stuck in their own civil war. Uh, so the, the challenge is to get the sane side to say, hey, I can vote for this bill and I'm not and things are not so polarized that I will be punished for it in my own primary. To Starley's point before, Republicans often go against general public opinion because they have to respond to intraparty public opinion. Right now, I do not think intraparty public opinion dictates to Republicans they have to oppose this bill. Maybe that changes. But when you're at 75 hmm. percent approval and no organized opposition, that's a pretty good set of circumstances to get to peel off 10 Republicans. I think they're going to get organized, though. I, th- I think impeachment is going to get them organized again. Or going to hate each other more. We, we don't know how much they're going to extrude at each other after impeachment. Well, that's true. <laughs> you have, I think, it's probably a smaller piece of the Republican Party than, than, than the larger chunk. But I think there's some piece that believes the path we're on now as Republicans is not sustainable. We can't be a Q party. We can't be a Trump party. That's not the way to govern long term, not the way to become a majority party again. We have to break free of this. But Mitch McConnell was that way before Trump, before Q. Right. McConnell is saner, although obviously with a great pension of a great obstructionist bent. But look at look at December when there was a bipartisan group that said we have a covid relief bill. It's 900 billion. Uh, It's the right thing to do. And they have the Georgia runoffs come around the corner. Mitch McConnell said, you know what? The cost of obstruction is too high to pay right now. It is not good for Republicans to obstruct right now, and so I'm not going to. He is a, he is, he is a rational, calculating thinker. I'm not saying he's a, not saying he's a saint. I'm not saying he's a heart of gold. <laughs> I'm not saying his heart grew three sizes after, after the pandemic. Uh, but he can calculate. So the challenge for Biden and the, Dem- and the Democrats is make it so the calculation is to cooperate and not to obstruct. When are we going to get our COVID checks? Bill, I mean, I would think um, you know by the spring. Mm-hmm. I would think there'd be checks. Uh, I think I think the bill's going to pass was by like mid March. I thought it was coming this week. Are we going to get we're going to get these checks after the pandemic? Exactly. I've not gotten my December check yet. I got my I got no. mine this weekend. I don't know why it came. It's a paper check. I, you, last time they I got a direct uh, deposit. It's a paper check, and it says Donald Trump has Donald Trump's name on it. Stimulus check by Donald Trump and Donald Trump exclusive or something like that. That's how he haunts us. Yeah, exactly. That's how he still gets to live. Haunted ink. Now I don't know if there will be a compromise on the threshold where you get that check. I mean, Biden has definitely signaled that he is open to negotiating what the level is. He's not going to negotiate the amount. That whole thing is so fucking disingenuous. All all of a sudden, Republicans are worried that rich people are going to get free money. Come on. Well, it's Joe Manchin that that cares. (laughs) Joe Manchin raised that flag, and and Joe Manchin calls the tune right now. Do we—okay, 
now I'm going off on a thing here. But Manchin, I understand why Manchin's controlling everything. And I understand the politics in West Virginia. But why is cinema in the same? I mean, I don't think of Arizona and West Virginia as the same. Arizona may still lean slightly to the right, maybe. But I, I, get, I get Manchin's positions. Why does cinema have to be so stuck in her ways? Cinema to me is the biggest enigma in the Senate. Woo! Mm. Here we go. I, I wish there was more reporting on cinema. She, I think she is deeply confusing. I mean, for folks who don't know, she's a senator from, from Arizona. She used to be a Green Party activist. And she went all the way to being one of the most centrist members of, of the Senate. Now, Arizona is purple and very newly purple. So I do think it is understandable that you want to lean a little bit to the middle there to maintain your your standing. It's not, she can't run a hard left campaign and keep that seat. Mm. But at the same time, you know, Manchin at least talks. I know something about what Manchin cares about because he tells me. Right. Cinema is just a brick wall. All I know is that she won't do the filibuster. She said she won't abolish the filibuster. But what are her asks in this relief bill? I have absolutely no idea. I mean, Manchin created this group of 16 of eight Democrats, eight Republicans, she's not in it. I don't know what she does all day. I don't know who she's talking to. I mean, maybe that means she won't throw a flag and, and, and try to push one way or the other, but it's just a total unknown to me. Is that smart of her? If, you, if no one knows what you're thinking? I mean, you we're can, talking about her on one of the hottest podcasts, so that's got to <laughs> help, you know what I mean? Like, But is she trying to become man like him? Like, is she trying to position herself? I honestly don't know what makes Christian cinema tick. I mean, a part of me... Uh, just feels like I'm a freaking senator. I'm living my best life, and I just don't care. <laughs> I'm going to go and do my own thing, and I'll come to my votes, and you and you know what I'm going to do, and I'm not going to tell you, and that's that. It, but it, she could come at any time and, you know, cause problems because she clearly is not sworn to holding the party line at all times. Bill, as long as we have you here on this Zoom call, what's going to happen with impeachment? How many votes will there be in the Senate to convict former President Donald Trump? I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to put a hard number on it. I, oh, God, well, that's what the, come on, man. I got my predicted open. I <laughs> thought I had, a, I thought I had this process genius on the line. You were going to help me give me all this inside information. Yeah, we, we, we need, it doesn't have to be hard, but can you give us a range? It's got to be hard. I don't think they'll convict. I don't think they'll get 17. When you say 17, that's because you need 67 senators and you're assuming that all 50 Democratic senators will vote to convict. Right. And maybe I shouldn't assume that. Maybe a Joe Manchin or a Sinema doesn't vote to convict. Oh, my God. If Kristen Sinema votes not to convict, her mystery will only grow more powerful. <laughs> oh, my God. But, I, but you'd need 50 plus 17 to, to get the conviction. I don't think that will happen. Uh, I would not strictly take the vote to dismiss and assume that will be the final vote. You could vote to dismiss, which most Republicans in the Senate did. I think, I think only five voted to proceed. You could have voted to dismiss and said, well, I heard the arguments, and now I, I think the, the I, I would have dismissed, but, the, but we didn't dismiss, and the case was made, so I'm going to vote for it. I mean, that's possible. Uh, but I don't know if I expect a lot of Republicans to be in that camp. So I'd probably think less than 10 would vote to convict, and probably closer to five. Well, 55 or 56 is the leading bracket in that market. It's at 36 cents. So, Bill, would you buy at that price? Is that a fair price, Bill, 36 cents? I'm, I'm such a poor gambler. <laughs> this is not gambling, Bill. This is investing. You know about GameStop? This is investing like GameStop. So 36 cents for what price? 
36 cents, you can buy a share that 55 or 56 senators will vote to convict. And if that does happen, that pays out at a dollar. I mean, 55 seems pretty safe to me. Since you had five willing to say that this wasn't uh, worthy of dismissal. But the thing is, it doesn't pay out if 57 or 58 vote to convict. Bill, do you, do, have you ever traded on predicted? No, no, I've never, I've never, I've never invested. <laughs> it's in a conflict of interest for the job. If you're going to be a pundit, you can't put money on the table. Mm, see, we kind of think the opposite. We think if you're going to be out there. You should be you required. Should, <laughs> yeah, put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. You know, I, my, my first jobs as a young adult was working for what's called a political intelligence firm. Uh, and so we would do analysis of various bills and regulations working to the system and say, this would help the chemical industry. This would hurt the insurance industry. And I think it's got a 70% chance of passage. So I've, I've had my headspace in that world, you know, for, for a time, but I was, I never put my money on the, I was thinking other people were to put their money, but not my, never my own money. So Bill, we have a lot of young listeners, as we mentioned earlier, and some of these listeners I think are at a crossroads. We have some teenagers who identify as hard left, you know, DSA type of people. And then we have some other young people who identify more as centrists. Now I'm going to assume you are, you would self-identify more as a centrist than a leftist, right? What, Given what the words of wisdom do you have for today's youth? Um, read history. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Say something exciting. What could, what has history ever taught us? Name one thing history has taught us. Well, here's the, here's the thing. I mean, I, I'm actually, I've, I'm the vice president of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Library and Museum Standing Committee. Wait, what? <laughs> Is that true? That's true. That's true. Really? Yes. Are you serious? I did Sam. We would just wasted a fucking hour talking about COVID. You're the vice president of the Calvin Coolidge something and whatnot? <laughs> the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Library Museum is in Northampton, Massachusetts, where I live. It's literally like, you know, five blocks from me. Uh, and we're part of the broader Forbes Library, and I'm on the committee that helps manage the, the museum. I know we have at least one listener whose head just exploded Sam. all over and uh, wow. I run a book club through the through the museum. So we're going through one by one. Uh, and I've actually I'm a I've read more than when I've done with the club. So I've read a bio on every president up through Truman. And when you do that, it just makes it a lot easier to not always fight the last war. I think so many people's political sensibilities have been shaped by Obama Trump, especially if you're young. Like that's what that's what you know. Uh, and so when you tell me, why would Republicans do X? This is what they did under Obama. Well, that's what they did under Obama. There's a lot of different dynamics happening right now. There's so much fluidity in our politics right now in both parties uh, that you don't want to make these very simple assumptions based on what happened five, 10 years ago because you see how these parties have evolved over time when you have that kind of long-term perspective. But the young people will say it's the same people who have been in power from the beginning of time. There's a lot of types of people who didn't get a say in the systems in place. It's like they don't identify with those presidents. They don't, they feel that the mistake started then and they don't want to have any part of that. They want, they want the, the whole system to come down. They're not going to, they don't want to learn from those people. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to know that I'm never going to change anybody's mind about anything. And if you believe the whole system needs to come crashing down, I'm never going to change your mind about that. But I'm saying, like, how do you how do you get them to want to learn from those books when they feel like it doesn't represent them or a lot of a, a large swath of people? 
it's all men. It's all white men. Like, stuff like that. Like, I'm just saying to try to appeal to them to get them to read that stuff. Even if you have a revolutionary mindset, there have been these waves of populism and revolutionary thinking over the course of American history. You should want to know what happened there. Why, why did they come about? Why did they fail to take off? Or what impact did they have? You know, we, the first you know, protest in Washington, D.C. was, I think it was in Grover Cleveland's presidency. And it was kind of laughed at the time as a, as a ridiculous maneuver. But obviously, it, it was a tactic that became more popular over time. Not always to great effect, but sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, why was there a populist wave around the time of Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson? You know, we're so we're very quick to dismiss Woodrow Wilson now as because he, he segregated the federal workforce in part, but he was part of a, a populist progressive wave. Why was that? What did he do? What, what worked and what didn't? You should want to know these things. And, and, and I put it into sort of modern political context. There are people who thought at the beginning of the presidential primary that Joe Biden was such a relic, so out of step with what's going on in the world today, what's going on in the Democratic Party today, that he wasn't even worth taking seriously. And when the, when the busing debate came about, when Kamala Harris took a swipe in about busing, and Biden seemed to kind of lamely defend himself there, it seemed to uh, crystallize this notion that he was of a different era that doesn't apply today. And I was saying at the time, the racial polarization going on at the time of the busing debate is exactly... <laughs> Like what we're going through today. And Biden is one of the few politicians who has gone through that fire and has sur and survived it, that managed to walk a line between getting support from African-Americans in Delaware and working class racist white people and live to tell the tale. So you want to, how did that possibly happen? What could he have possibly have said and done to maintain bonds with both sides of, of that fence? That's important information to know. Do you think Biden is going to be a good president? Um, I mean, I'm hopeful. I think he's got a lot of things working in his favor right now. And I think he's coming in. He's coming in at a low bar. <laughs> where What right. constant success, I think, is going to be pretty charitable. Uh, but I got to say, a 50-50 Senate is not, I mean, as, as optimistic as I am that bipartisanship is possible. I know 10 Republicans is hard. I would have much rather been 55 than 50 and have to get five Republicans than 10. And I know that you, you, can, only, you can only do so much, you know, with the, with reconciliation, with not having the, the filibuster abolished. So what is the, and what is the correct opinion to have about abolishing the filibuster? Well, I mean, I'm not for abolishment. I think this, and this gets back to a bit of me being an annoying history nerd. Um, I mean, I, I'm also kind of Machiavellian. I get that, who cares about process? Who cares how you get it done? The public doesn't care. Get it done however you get it done. The problem is that whatever tools you avail to yourself, the other side is going to be able to use. If you think Republicans are so monstrous today, what, what might they do once they're unleashed? Then people say, oh, well, they don't even want to pass anything. They All they want is their tax cuts and their judges, and they can get to the reconciliation. They already abolished the judicial filibuster. And I was like, I don't think you're being creative enough. I don't think you know what they could possibly do, given the, given the opportunity. Um, and given how politics might get more polarized if in that environment. Uh, take, for example, the Australian carbon tax. Because they don't have filibusters in Australia. It's a parliamentary system. Whatever party gets a majority gets to run the whole show. The Labour Party had a carbon tax. The Liberal Party, which is the Conservatives in Australia, they immediately ran against the carbon tax. They won the next federal election, and they repealed it in a year. If you make things easier to pass and repeal, not only 
your prize policies might not live to see the day, but I think it's also very destabilizing. If you can't know what's going to be the law every five years, that's very hard for business to operate under. Uh, some people have a majoritarian view that, well, you know, if, you, if Democrats can't sell it, that's their own problem. But these, these things will be popular at the end of the day, so it's nothing to worry about. You know, things aren't always instantly popular. It took a while for the Affordable Care Act to become popular, and it's not all that popular. Um, yeah. Because people's, people need managed expectations, and, that, and they, they, they easily get out of whack. So you need time to get things into place, to work out the kinks. And if things can get repealed, I mean, think if Obama lost to Mitt Romney in 2012 before the AC was in place and you had no filibuster, that would be gone. It would never see the light of day. That's what I'm worried about. Okay, my final question, and this is the most important question of all because I have the most writing on it. Will Merrick Garland be attorney general by March 1st? Yes. Are you sure? Yeah. Because I'm really underwater on this. Everyone says they're not going to have time because of impeachment and COVID relief. They're just going to punt on all these big appointments and confirmations. No, I don't, I don't think it's going to take that long. Short month, short month. Yeah, it's a short month. What's he trading at? He's at 54 cents and I bought it 78 cents. So I don't like it right now. So everyone thinks it's a, they think it's a toss up pretty much. Yeah. All right. Bill Share says it's a buy. I, I would buy at that. He doesn't know what he's talking about, though. He doesn't know. <laughs> no, I think he might. I think he might. I'm buying. I'm going to buy. I think. Are you serious? Yeah, I'll buy on that. As a general matter, Republicans have not been very obstructionist about cabinet appointees. Very minimal obstruction. Generally big votes for all the nominees. It's a sensitive post. I don't think the impeachment, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to mess up the schedule, but I don't think it's going to take that long. The Democrats don't want to take that long. They want to get back to COVID relief. And COVID relief's not going to gum up the works on the floor between now uh, and March 1st. So there's time to get that nomination through. Do you think after they pass Mayor Garland, they'll do a slow clap? (laughs) (laughs) That's when Mayor Garland becomes a leash. Yeah. Attorney General's got a lot of power. You you know whose number he's, he's going to call up once he's once he's in there. Why do leftists? Why do? I don't have a delicate way to say this. Why do you drive people on the left so crazy, and why do they hate you so much and block <laughs> you on Twitter? Well, what I think is most annoying about me. <laughs> Bill goes first, and then we all have to follow his example and say what's most annoying about us. <laughs> Especially if you're younger and you. There's some people who are older and remember me when I was more of a you know, garden variety liberal blogger saying garden variety liberal things. And now I'm being more of the contrarian, bipartisan, all that. So if you're a 20-something teenage DSA leftist, you, you lump me in to all the other hack pundits and think, I just don't know what I'm talking about. And I may be wrong about things, and I've been wrong about things, but I do know what I'm talking about. I'm, I have not approached this with, with a ignorance about what your argument is. I know your argument. And I have rebuttals to your arguments. Uh, and so you're not, not going to catch me off guard with what you're saying about whatever issue it is. So I got to think that's got to annoy the hell out of a lot of folks. Wait, you, did you just say the thing that's annoying about you is you know everything? Is that he's smart. Yeah. Wow. That's right. Yeah. Okay, a little twist through there. He works too hard. Here's, here's, here's the trick. I will, I will reveal the magic. Historical anecdotes. They make you sound like a genius every single time. <laughs> hmm. All right. Right, because when you talk to Bill, he's like, but you have to remember in 1934, Woodrow Wilson's undersecretary of education tried to protest the goldfish law, and it took 17 voice votes in the lower house to pass it. 
And then everybody got a free goldfish. People don't remember that. That's my impression of Bill Sher. That was good. What I think is going to be Biden's strongest um, advantage is he is, I, I, he, he's the one, he's, he's a very, very rare kind of old person, very, very rare kind of white old man who seems very interested <laughs> in listening to the youth and like listening to the present moment in a way that um, defied expectations. So, so weirdly, I think some of these leftists might take, become, feel more fondly towards him than they do to you. Because, like... He's a, he's a better politician than I am. Yeah. The trick is to know, learn from history, know history, read, live the experience that Biden has while still listening to why today's young people are so upset. You know, Biden has always been someone who grows. He doesn't... He's not static. I mean, I was a little surprised that he had... He seemed kind of old fogeyish through part of that primer, and he wasn't staying yeah, as current as, sure. he, as he had been. But like on, but on gay marriage, for example, he was always... I mean, LGBT transgender rights, he's very on point. Mm-hmm. Um, he knows he knows they should stay current. But I think he also knows where he's uh, uncomfortable going too far. He'll, he'll draw a line if he wants to draw a line and say, you can't push me around and make me do things I don't want to do. But he does it respectfully. He does it most of the time. <laughs> and uh, and he'll give you enough of what you want and say enough of what you like to hear and give you enough, give you enough posts, put people in charge of certain things to keep people at bay. Now, there may be some push-come-to-shove moments where he has to do a deal that some folks on the left don't like and maybe and those tensions will reemerge again. But if he can get $1.4, $1.5 with or without Republicans. If you're with Republicans, then he's, he's a magician. <laughs> Everyone's going to be like, wow, this guy can do anything. I'll go wherever you want me to go. Uh, if he does it with Democrats only, people will at least on the left feel like, hey, he pushed as hard as he could. He did it the way he wanted him to. Maybe that will allow me to come some more slack down the road because I don't feel like he's diametrically opposed to me. Do you think uh, Biden will run again? If you asked me a year ago, I would have said no. And now I'm a lot uh, less confident of that. I think the I think the election was close enough, certainly enough states, where some people are thinking you know, maybe maybe this guy's the Trump killer. Maybe Biden's got something that other folks just don't have. Uh, now that's uh, complicated by the fact that maybe Trump's not allowed to run again. There's also just a reality of age. Correct. Like and any even the most minor of health issues might be enough to say I can't trust him doing it. Uh, now, Kamala Harris, I've always been of the of the mind that vice presidents have a huge inside track in primary. It's why I stuck with Biden for as long as I did this time around when people thought I was crazy. But vice president means you've got 48 years in the public eye, you've got a comfort level, you've got a network of donors, network of supporters. It's a big head start. And I'd say it for Mike Pence as well as Kamala Harris. But Kamala has work to do to become more familiar in those wider swing states. She did that interview in West Virginia, which was intended to pressure Joe Manchin, and it was a terrible interview, if, you, if you've seen it. It's not just that Manchin got mad at it. It was a bad interview in and of itself. And I've sort of been pretty positive about Kamala. I'm not, here, I'm, not, I'm not an anti-Kamala person. I thought she should have been VP, and I think she can be a very good presidential candidate, but she has work to do, and that interview told me that she has a lot of work to do. Do you think bipartisanship is inherently good? I don't think bipartisanship makes better legislation. You can have a bill that gets watered down to the point of ineffectiveness through a bipartisan process. I think we have seen after the last four years that there are some serious threats to the fabric of democracy with excessive polarization. 
Uh, it would be bad. I, I, I would rather have a Republican Party divided about Q than the Republican Party united around Q. I mean, it might make it easier for Democrats to win elections, but if you have a party of insurrectionists, that's not good. Oh, did you read about that in one of your history books? <laughs> it's, called, it's called the Civil War. Uh, and you don't want another one of those. And um, we, saw, we saw a taste of that on January 6th. Uh, so I'd rather, I'd rather not go farther down that path if we can avoid it. Ted Cruz, thumbs up or thumbs down? Uh, I, I will always quote Al Franken on this score. Uh, more the, I like Ted Cruz more than anybody else in the Senate, and I hate Ted Cruz. Starting a sentence, I will always quote Al Franken on this, might also be why some of the people on the left get upset with you. But this is Bill Share. I mean, this is the Bill Share speaks his truth, man. This is the this is this is what drives him crazy over in that trap house, over in Chapo's trap house. I love the Chapo trap house hates you. That's like a hot a cup of hot cocoa to me. Well, I wrote a very mean book review of their book, which they've never forgiven me for. Wonderful. Oh, Bill, Bill, Bill. Uh, is there anything you want to plug? Do you want to plug your uh, insane podcast <laughs> <laughs> about 19th century political processes? <laughs> My podcast, When America Worked, as you've, you've plugged oh. on the show. You've kindly plugged on the show. History of American Pragmatism, baby. Oh, woo, spitting hot fire, the history of American pragmatism. Look, let, 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 let me sell this, David, okay? Okay, yeah. I would, oh, I'm ready for this elevator pitch. It's a scripted podcast. They're hard to produce. I, I don't bang them out every week. It's, it's going to be every you know few months or so. But the first one is a 90-minute story of how the United Nations was created and how the man who created Edward Statinius, who nobody remembers today, was disrespected in his time and afterwards single-handedly saved the world from world wars. And he would not have gotten in that post because he had no business being America's top diplomat. He did not have the experience for the job. He would not have gotten there if it was not for a gay sex scandal on FDR's train in 1940. There you go. When America worked. Love it. Sounds like a podcast about a lot of men, huh? It, well, my, I'm, I'm not done with it yet, but my second installment will be about Shirley Chisholm. Oh, okay. <laughs> See? Can't get me. You cannot get me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that wascally wabbit. That wascally wabbit. Listener questions. We have a couple listener questions. You can always send listener questions and or misconnections to contact at electionprofitmakers.com. No misconnections this week. We will return with missed connections next week. But we do have some good old-fashioned listener questions, including this one from Jack. I hope you have some expertise to share on two topics. Number one, I'm trying to play at being a responsible grown-up and do my taxes early and thoroughly. I'm sure all you high rollers made more than $600 on predicted and got a 1099 form, but I wasn't so successful. But I understand I'm still supposed to report my net winnings of, drumroll, $71.05, but obviously without a 1099 MISC form. I don't know what info to put where in my tax return, and my Googling has been in vain. So maybe you or your listeners have some idea how that works. John? Number one, we are not tax preparedness professionals, so don't take anything we say here as advice. But basically, my understanding is you put it under, quote-unquote, other income in your 1040. It's basically gambling winnings. Um, and if you want to 
look uh, more specifically into that. If, if you wanted to offset that with the gambling losses, then you need to add a Schedule A uh, form. Um, but if you just Google gambling winnings IRS, that uh, basically tells you that you just put it under other income. My advice would be make more money next time oh, so you get a 1099. My God. Okay, John. Okay. Jack's out here trying. Maybe he only invested $20 and got a 300% return. We don't know how much he invested. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm moving on to the next part of Jack's question, which hopefully won't be quite so provocative. Or actually, John, why don't you read this part? Because the first part was for you and the second part is for oh. me. It could be cool if I read the part for you and you read the part for me. He writes, more importantly... I wonder if David could point me in the direction of an interesting pedal for my bass. I tried once to build a basic fuzz slash boost from plans I found online, but it never sounded like much of anything. I'd be more interested in funky or bluesy tones or anything weird that I could meddle with. I have a couple suggestions for Jack when it comes to bass pedals. I'm going to ignore the stuff about wanting something that has funky or bluesy tones. You're not into bluesy? That holds no currency here at Election Profit Makers World Headquarters. We are into bleeps, bloops, buzzes, clicks, whirs, and tinnitus. And we don't mess with that other stuff. Did you say tinnitus? Yeah, tinnitus. My tinnitus is getting really noticeable. Really? You have it? Yeah, I have it. You and Phil Collins. I have it too, Starly. It really kicked in this year. And then my friend who's a musician said that it can be exacerbated by stress. And so I wonder if the stresses of this year... What are you stressed about? What could be happening right now in the world that it would be causing you stress? I'm stressed out that I didn't know that Bill Scher is co-president of the Calvin Coolidge Society and Memorial Library or whatever he was talking about. That's the kind of stuff I should have known about years ago. Ugh, we should have asked him about the mechanical bull. Oh, damn it. Now I'm stressed about that. Now, you're, I now, develop- now do you hear the ringing in your ears, Starly? Because now you have yeah. tonight. Calvin Coolidge <laughs> making our ears ring from beyond the grave. We know Sam's going to be writing us quite the email <laughs> for next week. <laughs> Sam, it's all good. We already know what you're going to say. You can. You don't have to waste the time. Jack, here's what I'm going to say. The Boss Bass Synthesizer SYB5. I want you to buy this pedal and mess around with it. This is a good introductory bass synth pedal. Corey, my friend, who I've talked about before, had one of these pedals, and this was a real game changer for me when it came to playing my modified circuit-bent children's toys through this pedal. It offers so many different tones and effects. It is a great intro bass synth pedal. And yes, I will admit that for the purposes of your funk tones, this might work well. So you can buy these cheap secondhand, try this pedal, and let me know what you think. That is the pedal I recommend to you, Jack. Thank you for writing. There's other pedals that we could get into, but I want you to start with that one because that was a real game-changing pedal for me. That pedal really launched me on my experimental music journey, davidreesrecords.bandcamp.com. There it is, folks. Another incredible episode of Election Profit Makers in the History Books. What? I just wanted to tell you that I emailed you the fuck it. We'll do it live. I... I've seen, I saw it. I'm not playing it yet because we're still recording our Please podcast. Please play it sometime but, soon. <laughs> but I will play it as soon as we finish recording our podcast. Oh, another wonderful episode of Election Profit Makers has come to a close. But don't worry, we'll be back next week. I guess by this time next week, boy, the, the impeachment trial in the Senate will be in full swing. We will no doubt have hot takes, investment insight, and many wonderful jokes to make about that process. I would also like to say when it comes to jokes, for those of you who criticized my British accent on last week's episode, if you have never lived in England among the British, you are in no position to judge the authenticity of my giving voice to those unique set 
of uh, vocal, uh, uh, fuck it, whatever. Everybody just leave me alone. Oh, and also I was totally right about the 14th Amendment last week, and I, then I got it confused with the section of the criminal code, but I was not mixing it up with the 25th Amendment. There is something in the 14th Amendment, which was written after the Civil War, about sedition and not being allowed to run for office again. See, I, I'm dropping history like Bill Sher over here. You getting all your, you getting all your, like, comeuppances in the credits. I gotta get all, you come to, the, you, you come for the comeuppances and you stay <laughs> for the credits. That's how it's gonna be from now on. From now on, the credits, to get people to listen to the credits, I will air grievances throughout my reading of the credits. Oh, that clogged toilet. I am not done with you yet. I'll see you in my dreams tonight, you clogged toilet. <laughs> Election Profit Makers is a Radio Point production with executive producers Alex Bach, Rich Gorson, and Daniel Powell. Now, I've said that, and that makes you think we're rich and that we make money off this podcast, but we don't. So go to patreon.com slash electionprofitmakers. Exactly. Yeah. Patreon really helps us financially afford to be able to do this podcast. We just posted last week a special EPM movie club for our Patreon donors. It's a movie club about four classic films set in North Carolina chosen by John Kimball. All you have to know is that when we get to the discussion of Brainstorm, I reveal the solution to a mystery that had haunted me for 30 plus years. Send your election prediction questions to contact at electionprofitmakers.com. Election Profit Makers is sponsored by predictit.org. Go to predictit.org slash promo slash EPM20 to receive up to $20 in matching funds. And please rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Spotify and Overcast and Outback Steakhouse. Definitely iTunes, because that's a thing that people, that's definitely what they say now. iTunes. iTunes, iTunes, iTunes. Rate and review us on iTunes so that we will... Sh that's modern. And Lycos and Angelfire. Rate us on those as well. I'll tell you, Apple, they make great software. Okay, goodbye. I'm. This episode <laughs> is over. My name is David. I'm saying goodbye to my co-host. Goodbye, Starly. Bye. Goodbye, John. Bye-bye. <laughs> Fuck it. We'll do it live. This is Starly. John and David logged off the Zoom. They really don't know. Neither of them know this is happening. John's birthday was yesterday, Monday. So everyone who hears this, if you've gotten to the end of this episode, which I hope you have because you never know what little goodies are going to be at the end of the episodes. So everyone tweeted to him, happy birthday. It'll be one day later, but in the pandemic, I feel like a two-day birthday is the least we can do for people. He probably will have been up all night and hasn't slept, so it's like a continuation of his birthday day anyway. I'll start. Happy birthday, John Kimball. Bye.